0: Hello, it's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. Before we get into this episode of the Brendan O'Neill Show, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to our Christmas appeal so far. As listeners to this podcast will know, Spiked is completely free because we want anyone, anywhere to be able to access our journalism, our podcasts and our videos without any paywalls getting in their way. But to keep Spiked free, we ask those who enjoy our work to chip in. In fact, your donations have never been more important – particularly at a time when advertisers are so hostile to dissenting voices like ours. Indeed, even as our audience has soared in recent years, our ad revenue has actually gone down. Woke corporates would rather pass up the opportunity to advertise to you than grubby themselves by dealing with us. But who needs them? Over 70% of our revenue now comes from you, our readers and listeners and viewers. And as we go into Christmas, we're asking those who haven't donated before or haven't donated in a while or perhaps could afford to donate just a little bit more to give to our Christmas appeal. Your money really makes a huge difference. If everyone who reads Spiked on any given month gave us just £5 this Christmas, we'd be able to fund our work for two years. Plus, we'd be able to take Spiked to the next level. With your help, we can really make a splash next year. And we've got lots in store for you. So if you like what we do, if you think the media is an infinitely better place with Spiked in it, please do go to spiked-online.com slash donate and give generously. We also have a special offer on at the moment. During the Christmas period, those who donate £50 or more will get a free Spiked mug. That's UK donors only, and of course, while stocks last. So, to get your hands on one of those mugs, go to spiked-online.com slash mug to make your donation and fill in your postal address. Thank you so much, and now, over to Brendan.
1: Every year, the world uses about 100 billion barrels of oil as an energy equivalent. A barrel of oil is the equivalent of over four years of labor. The energy I use every day is the equivalent of 240 people working for me 24 seven, 365. But this has been the delusion that has been sold to Europeans that you can significantly reduce all the things that depend on energy but keep the same living standards. And that's simply impossible.
2: Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Ralph Schollhammer. Ralph, welcome to the show. Hey, Brendan, great to be with you again. It's wonderful to have you back on. There are so many things I want to talk to you about in your capacity as a sensible writer on climate change and populism and many other issues and also in your capacity as a visiting fellow at MCC Budapest, which is one of the more sensible think tanks in Europe, which really does ask the questions that other think tanks don't want to about our political future and where things are going. So there's a lot I want to dig down into uh, with you today, uh, but I really have to start with COP28 because, I can't believe this, you were there. And um, I don't think I've ever spoken to someone, not knowingly, who's been to one of these... Um, what I consider to be quite decadent, crazy annual also gatherings of people who are apparently going to save humanity from doom. So COP28 took place in the United Arab Emirates. There was a lot of controversy around it because people said that sneaky oil and gas deals were being done on the side and that the uh, president of COP28 had recently said that we can't get rid of fossil fuels that will send everyone back to the caves. So there were lots of controversy swirling around it. And there's quite a lot I want to ask you about COP28 and what has come out of it, which is very interesting. Uh, but to begin with, what is it like to be there? Is it is it as uh, decadent and outrageous as some of us from outside like to think it is, or is it a bit more run-of-the-mill networking event when you're actually in the thick of it. What's it like?
1: I would say it is the latter. It's like it's one of those world expos you have, right? You have all these different pavilions and you have these different uh, discussion groups and and presentations. I mean, it's basically a very nice event. I mean, the the United Arab Emirates, they know how to set something up like this. Um, I'm sure it was also a boon to their economy. I agree with the critics that say, is it really necessary to fly in between seventy or 80,000 people to participate in this? And my answer would be No. Um, I had the opportunity, so I jumped on it because I, I kind of made the promise to myself that the only reason I would ever go to Dubai is if it is for work-related reasons. Uh Nothing against the United Arab Emirates; it's just uh, the glittering metropolis of Dubai is just not my thing. So you know, no, no offense to anybody who enjoys this. I'm not, an, I'm not an influencer, so taking pictures at the beach is not really my thing. Um, so, so I was glad to have that opportunity. But it is, in a, on a more serious note. It is a good way to take the temperature, if you want, of kind of where the global climate debate is heading. So as you already mentioned in your intro, the fact that it took place in the United Arab Emirates, I think, is an interesting sign. I think the next one is going to take place in Azerbaijan, which I would say is more or less also a petrostate state in its own right. So I think that shows a little bit where the direction is going. And uh, I think this is going to be an interesting part of our conversation. I think you could make the argument that the non-Western world, in a sense, is trying involuntarily to rescue the Western world from its own suicide simply because they are abandoning or increasingly abandoning uh, all pretensions to be on board with phasing out fossil fuels or signing up to net zero. And I think if this catches on, also in more and more countries in the West, that might save us from from energy poverty and then, of course, actual poverty and all the political consequences that it can have. So full disclosure here, uh, one of the main reasons why I was there is because I, I was working with some nuclear advocacy groups, but everybody who knows my writing and follows me on social media, I never made a secret out of my... Um, admiration and support for nuclear energy. I think it is a miraculous technology. I think it's going to play and will play a key role in whatever we want to accomplish, whether it be in the United Kingdom, in Europe or worldwide. We will need more energy. And I think we're going to talk about this also in greater detail. So again, full disclosure, I'm going kind to of make no qualms about this. Also, because I already can see the email saying, oh, so yeah, shill for the nuclear lobby. Let me just say one thing. There is no worse lobby on the planet than the nuclear lobby. It's like a a case study in, imagine you find the world's greatest technology, how can you make everybody hate it? And that is kind of what the nuclear lobby accomplished. It's really, really interesting that they managed to find something that if we would develop it or have developed it yesterday, we would hail it as a miracle. But they managed to make it something that everybody or almost everybody either hates or is afraid of. Again, with the exception of the Arab countries and some others. So there's also a shift in that direction. So in this respect, I think COP28 was interesting because you could see the changes that might take place on the horizon in the future. But again, is the event itself a necessity? Of course not. But I think you can say this about many, many, many events. So as I said, these these summits, it's photo ops. For example, the Austrian delegation came with 40 people. I don't know why this is necessary. Global climate is not going to be decided in Austria. The German delegation came with a similar number. Uh, The Germans are always nice to observe, I have to admit, however, because they still believe... That the world is looking at them and that they are the global role model how to do energy policy. So if you hear them talk and you have this cognitive dissonance because uh, between what they think the world thinks about them and then you talk to others what they actually think about them, that is always quite intriguing. It's like you know, a scene at a party, you enter a party room and, and everybody looks at you and you think, Oh my, I must I must look awesome, I must look great. But in fact, it is because you know you stepped on some toilet paper that you're dragging in, or you have a half a burrito on your face, or something like that. That's a little bit the role of Germany. They think everybody looks at them in an admiring fashion, when in truth it is that most countries now say, okay, this is the one path we don't want to go down.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ralph, my view is that if if one is going to shill for any industry, it ought to be the nuclear industry. Firstly, because they need all the help they can get. And secondly, because... Uh, this is an incredibly important form of energy production that could revolutionize life on this planet. And so um, I'm not saying you are a shill for the nuclear industry, but um, why not? Why shouldn't people big up nuclear power? We need more of it. But it, it's interesting listening to you there because um, when I was watching COP28, as as it was going along, I thought to myself, there's a kind of contradictory process at the heart of this climate change conference in particular because on the one hand it had the usual um staggering hypocrisy of green virtue signalers for example king charles was there got he got there in a private jet this is a man who is extravagantly wealthy he was rubbing shoulders with the sultan of brunei who's world famous for his car collection and the one of the emirs of qatar who has a whole fleet of private jets. I mean, these are the kind of people who live lives the rest of us can't even imagine. And yet we're always being told off for driving to the supermarket or taking an annual holiday uh, on a cheap flight and so on. So there was that usual, quite irritating hypocrisy, being lectured by the rich about the need for us to become more poor. That's essentially what a lot of it looked like. But at the same time, the contradictory element, and you've written about this, is that, as you say, this cop points towards something a bit different, a a kind of a wake-up call, certainly from developing nations, non-Western nations, uh, particularly on the issue of nuclear power. And you've written about the fact that um, numerous nations at COP have pledged to triple their nuclear power by 2050. Now, that's music to my ears. It sounds wonderful. I I wonder if you could say a little bit more about is is there a a realization among some nations of the world that nuclear power is the future and how serious do you think this commitment to tripling the amount of nuclear power by 2050, how serious do you think that is?
1: Okay, let me divide it in, in a couple of points. and I, kind of, I start with the smaller one and then move to the large issue. Now, the smaller one, when we talk about nuclear power, let me give you one example. I think this really highlights this also for our listeners that we know what we are talking about in, in, in greater details. For example, the amount of electricity that the United Arab Emirates use every year is about 130 terawatt hours, uh, And they have 9 million uh, people that live there. Austria has about the same kind of population. We are slightly below 9 million. We use half of that. We use around 70 terawatt hours. And Great Britain uses about two and a half times what the United Arab Emirates use. But Britain, of course, has almost 70 million inhabitants. Now, one wonders, why do they need so much more energy? And, And I'm not just talking about electricity. Why do they need so much electricity? Well, because if you want to have a metropolis basically in the desert, you need a lot of energy to make these things work, right? From air conditioning to everything else, you need a lot of energy. So what these countries realize, and we always look at the gold states and countries in Indies, let's say, more hostile by nature, in, in the where the, the environment is more hostile towards human flourishing, we always look at them very often as energy and resource exporters. But, of course, they also need a lot of energy themselves. And I think they have realized this. So this is why the United Arab Emirates have three reactors that are already running, and the fourth one is going to come online uh, next year. Again, this is not because they, they have been now in the pockets of the nuclear lobby or something. No, because they know they're going to need that electricity in the future if they have a growing population and if they want to prosper. The same is, of course, true in the United Kingdom. The same is true in, in continental Europe. So there is a realization that the future will need more energy and not less. Now, let me make another point that I find so particularly interesting when we want to build a bridge to climate. If let's say the worst scenarios are true, if we're already in the middle of the climate catastrophe and the world supposedly, now I don't believe these alarmist scenarios, but let's entertain them for the sake of our argument. If it's really that bad, right? we cannot get the CO2 that easily out of the atmosphere again. So the consequences that we are told are going to happen will then most likely happen. But if the world becomes less conducive to human life, we will need even more energy to keep it conducive to human life, right? Again, I think there's always the big difference then between, let's say, the, the eco-modernists and the eco-Malthusians because the latter one says, well, then we just need to have fewer people. Well, that's an option, but to get there, right, can cause a lot of pain and misery and I would say also revolution because I would assume people want to live and they don't want to die. And the first approach is one to say, okay, Climate change is happening. Consequences, some of them will be negative. Potentially, there is like the concept of the greening of the planet, right? More CO2. I think in certain areas, this can also have a positive effect. I know, I know I'm blasphemic now, but I think we have to look at the science in its entirety and not just the bits and pieces we like or, or the bits and pieces we dislike. And the answer to this will always be more energy. And I think this is what more and more nations have realized. Now, going to the very big picture, what you said, what you mentioned at the beginning, There is a key distinction, I would argue, that's increasingly also becoming obvious between the left and the right in Europe, but I think that was, and throughout the West, but that was particularly obvious uh, at COP28 and in the relation of the West with other states. The United Arab Emirates, African nations, uh, other Arab nations, Russia, China, India, they pursue their own national interest. That's the primary guiding star of their policies. The idea in the West for a very long time has been that, the national interest is a reactionary concept. That is something of the past. We don't do national interests, we do global interests. Like We save the global climate. We, we have to do international things. And I think what you gradually see happening is kind of a reversal, at least from the so-called, and I say so-called like very deliberately here, of the so-called right-wing parties that increasingly say, wait a moment, shouldn't the UK, shouldn't Austria, shouldn't the United States also primarily look at the national interest? And to kind of make an even broader case, because I know, Brenton, this is something you write so eloquently educated and so much about this. I think this is the mistake that, that many of us who well, let's say in the pro-energy camp have been making in the past is a lot of the things that we've seen in the past on the political left is that the core of the ideology is that it is at heart an anti-Western ideology. And I think everything the left stands for, I know this is very critical and I'm trying to be a little bit provocative also for your listeners. But a lot of the things that they stand for have that at their core. right? I sincerely believe that one of the reasons, whether it's transgenderism, which I think is, again, is an attack on the traditional Western concept of marriage and the family, whether it is environmentalism, right, which is a conscious attack on the benefits of the industrial revolution that happened 100, 150 years ago, uh, whether it's uh immigration, right, where the, where the idea is nations having a cultural identity based on tradition, that this needs to be diluted. It must be more diverse. Basically, you have to to bring in people from somewhere else because the British are just not good enough and the Austrians are just not good enough. So this is all part of a large ideological program, which I think the left has understood much better. Now, it is no coincidence. I don't know I'm going very broad here just for a second because this underlies a lot of this debate. It's no surprise if you look at somebody like Greta Thunberg, right, who checks all these boxes because, again, even her environmentalism was at heart an anti-Western ideology. I am, I'm not saying she didn't start genuinely with environmentalism. Again, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a conscious process, but it always then ends up at this anti-Western ideology, and we see this now in one very good example, the, the, the wave of anti-Zionism or which it truly is of anti-Semitism we see in the West is also driven by this because, of course, Israel is seen as a Western state in the Middle East. And I think this is a very, very important issue because there's this idea when we take, for example, nuclear energy, the scientific debate is over. I, there is no other form of electricity production that is superior to nuclear. End of story. End of debate. Now, when people say, what about the waste? There is no waste problem. This is a problem we have solved a long time ago. And I challenge everyone, if you your listeners, to name one human life that was lost due to nuclear waste. Good luck finding it because there hasn't been one. But this is, I think, the broader issue. This is something that other nations now realize. And that they say, wait a moment, just because you guys have embarked on a trajectory of suicide doesn't mean that we have to follow suit. And I think this is something that we see more and more. And I will just add one more thing, a quick one. We have to distinguish, particularly in fossil fuels, between the companies and what they do and what fossil fuels do? So I'm, you know, I'm the first one to say that. that you know, I'm sure there's a lot of shady business going on with Exxon Mobile and Saudi Aramco and all these companies. So I'm the first one to admit there's probably, if we look, take a closer look, a lot of the things we're going to see are not very pretty. But this does not change the fact that what they are producing, the hydrocarbons that they are making, are very, very, very important for the running of the global economy, which in turn is very, very important for prosperity. And I would say that prosperity is very important for maintaining democracy. There is this idea that democracy can stand on its own, but the main carrier or the shoulders on which democracy rests is a broad, satisfied, wealthy, socially mobile middle class. You cannot have that without energy abundance. So if we risk energy abundance, we risk the middle class, and ultimately we're going to also risk democracy. And I think politicians are not aware of these connections. We, we do this compartmentalized thinking where we look at one area and one area and one area, but we have to relearn to think in systems. These things are connected. So you cannot, like the Germans, for example, there's this belief in Germany, you can push your nation on a trajectory to poverty but the outcome of elections will be always the same as it was 10, 15 years ago. And now they're, you know, pearl clutching and say, how can the Alternative for Germany, you know, rise in the polls? Why are they so strong? Well, what did you expect? What did you expect? People, are, we we have a couple of polls out now. The German people are as unhappy the last time, because this was taken by Allensbach, a very famous pollster, since 1950. The Germans are now as miserable emotionally as they were in 1950. That is not a good sign, like people tend to be afraid of German angst. I'm more afraid of German anger because everybody says the IFD is the threat. I'm just saying, if this direction continues, um, we will be very surprised what kind of populists at one point will arise. And that might be much, much less uncomfortable than what we're seeing currently.
2: Hi, it's Brendan here. I want to let you know about a very exciting online event. At 6.15pm on Wednesday, the 20th of December, I'll be hosting a very special live recording of this podcast with Matthew Goodwin, the esteemed political scientist and author of Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics. Matt will be joining me to talk about the state of the Conservative Party, the state of the Labour Party, the rise and rise of the new elites, and whether the populist revolt still has some fizzle left in it. We'll also be taking questions from you, the audience. This is a free event exclusive to Spike supporters. So if you're already a member of Spike supporters, our online donor community, head over to the online donor hub now to register and claim your free ticket. If you're not a Spike supporter, now is the perfect time to sign up. For as little as £5 a month, you can grab your ticket for this event and enjoy loads of other exclusive perks too, including ad-free reading, access to our comment section, and access to other events like this one. Become a Spike supporter now at spiked-online.com supporters. That's spiked-online.com supporters. I hope to see you at 6.15pm on Wednesday the 20th of December with Matt Goodwin. I I, I agree with all of that, particularly your drawing together of the different anti-humanist strains in our society. I think it is incredibly important to see these as being connected and and part of a broader turn against Western civilization and a broader turn against humanity more broadly, you know, all those different uh, examples that you cite. Um, I want to come back to the question of Germany and populism and and what's going on there, because your insights on that, I think, are incredibly valuable. But uh, just to stick for a moment with the green turn against Western civilization, because that's always how I've understood environmentalism. And I'm sure there are lots of environmentalists whose hearts are in the right place. Certainly, when they start out, their hearts are in the right place. Um, and all of us want to live in societies that are clean, where there are fresh air, where there is clean water, where there's nice countryside. You know, that that's a given that that's what people want to have. But it seems to me that environmentalism has become, over the years, uh, uh, the ideology that best expresses Western society's loss of faith in its own project. And its loss of faith in modernity itself and and in the Industrial Revolution, which was the... One of the greatest moments in human history, if not the greatest moment in terms of its propulsion of us into an entire new era. And that's what's interesting to me also about COP28, because it almost called the bluff of environmentalists. And I really want to um, dig down a little bit with why you think environmentalists are so opposed to nuclear power. Because as you've said, it is without question the greatest form of electricity production that we have. Uh, It's very, very clean. The clearing up of nuclear waste is not a problem. It doesn't cause uh, damage to human life. It would allow us to move on from fossil fuels very quickly or at least relatively quickly if we were to seriously develop nuclear energy production over the next few decades. So doesn't the opposition to nuclear from certain environmentalists, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, Greenpeace and so on, doesn't that really expose that what's going on here, which is not just a hostility to fossil fuels, but a hostility to human endeavor itself and the right of human beings to exploit nature's resources in order to create a world of plenty. That's really what they're opposed to, isn't it?
1: No, I think that is true. And my i say I have a, a two part answer to this. One is imagine you have dedicated your life to a very specific problem that you want to solve. And then somebody comes along and says, I can wave a a magic wand and then problem will disappear. You might be tempted at the beginning, but at the back of your head, you probably think, yeah, but if that problem is gone, what am I going to do? Right? I I dedicated my life to this issue. And if it disappears, the core of my identity, the very thing that made me who I am is then gone. I think that's one part. The second part is, in many ways, environmentalism was a means to an end. And I just uh, saw a speech recently by Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, right, the world's most famous or most popular member of Congress in the United States, where they do the same thing. It's not about the environment; it's about abolishing greed and capitalism. Uh, again, I don't want to want to pile on too much on her, but Greta Thunberg is a great example here because she has literally morphed into this, you know, kind of neo-bolshevist figure, if you want, that is only talking now the usual leftist talking points. Again, the usual. We have to change the system, anti-colonialism, decolonization, uh, social justice, all these kind of things, because it was always meant as leverage uh, to use environmental problems to quote-unquote change the system or revolutionize the system. Now, if we can solve, however, or if we can make that leverage disappear and we can solve the environmental problem without plunging people into despair and poverty, well, then their dreams of revolution will also disappear. Um, Again, I'm not trying to formulate a conspiracy theory here, but as you said, If there is a potential solution, and I would, for example, also include the growing success and and, uh, economic viability of carbon capture and sequestration into this, like technology is amazing, right? There, There are really many things that would allow us to continue fossil fuels as well in a much safer environment in a much safer way. So I think we can solve all these problems. But there is, as you correctly point out, there is a resistance to the solutions that do not entail the, you know, the abolishment of the system or the immediate, the immediate phasing out of fossil fuels. And I think this is just, uh, as I said, this is ideological. This is philosophical. This has nothing to do with quote unquote the science. Uh, this is, again, you can hide behind the science just as somebody might hide behind the Bible or the Quran for their actions. But I don't think that it really has anything particularly uh, to do with this. And uh, it is. There's a lot, particularly on the rights, they like to throw around the term nihilism. I'm not sure if I'm entirely happy with that term. I mean, it, it, it sometimes it bemuses me for a very reason because I see a lot of, let's say, German characteristics in the environmental movement, right? This very idea that... We we need to save the world, even if it means potentially to burn it to the ground first. And it's all or nothing. These are kind of very, very 1920s, 1930s uh, or, or 19th century German approaches. But I think that is what's what's behind all of this. This is much more an ideological issue than it is a scientific or environmental issue. And I think we need to have the debate on these levels. Let me add just one more thing, because that's one thing I believe that the left understood better. And I'm gonna say something, you know, nobody can clip this, I hope, because it needs to it must be seen in the entire context. But this is something I think they have understood in the same way that in the past the Bolsheviks and the uh, the fascists understood this as well. That modern political ideologies must penetrate every aspect of life. I think this is where conservatives still have a problem, or right-wingers tend to have a problem with with their own ideology, that they think it is something, again, you know, you have, you're, you're libertarian in the economic realm, you're libertarian in the in the cultural realm, and then there are some political areas where, where you can then live your conservatism. The left, the modern left, has understood that in modernity, these things have to penetrate everything like that. It has to be, in essence... Totalitarian. And again, look at the debates. Like, look at the suggestions that are being made, right? That people should have, you know, carbon allowances that uh, there should be ways to be found that people eat less meat, uh, that they travel less, all these kind of things. These are, of course, in essence, totalitarian. It also, of course, includes indoctrination. Who is allowed to speak? Who can publish on YouTube? Who can publish on Facebook? Who can publish on Instagram? Right? All of these are the tools that were used by totalitarian ideologies in the past. Again, I'm not saying they're fascists. I'm not saying they're Bolsheviks. but I'm saying that there is a certain affinity to the methods because if the belief is that the world ends tomorrow or that the, the, the utopia is just around the corner. If everybody gets on board with our program, right, then why should you stop doing everything that's necessary? And this is again the difference, I think, between the contemporary some of them, the right and the left. Right? For the right, it's all about very often about evolution, gradual process, and you know, and kind of that the world in fifty years is essentially gonna be similar to the world today. On the left, however, it is we can have either utopia or apocalypse. And in order to reach the former and avoid the latter, all means that are necessary. Are fair game, and this is in essence again. This is how the Bolsheviks looked at the world. This is how the fascists looked at the world, or how the believers in the immediate second coming of Jesus looked at the world. Right? I think there's a, a broad array of examples we can use, but I think that explains a little bit both the enthusiasm, but also the, the psychological anxiety you see among these people. And again, I don't want to make this a monologue, but you have written about this again so insightful. I mean, you have young—it's not a majority, of course—but you have young people, you know, who cry. And and I was talking to a young a young Italian person in 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 Dubai he said, that's what he said I don't know if it's true but he said he had a friend who committed suicide out of fear of the the, the climate apocalypse and again this is all very 19th century you know uh, Emil Durkheim to me where you kind of have, have a very affluent part of the population and they somehow almost look for something to despair at in order to make life on the one hand more exhilarating, but of course also kind of more more frightful, if you want. And I think we have to look at this from this from this perspective. This is not a debate about you know how many terawatt hours should the British use, or, or it's, it's a debate on how should the British live. What is a good life supposed to look like? And if you look in Britain at people like George Monbiot, who I'm sure is a very nice person and who helps elderly ladies across the street, I have no doubt about this. But of course, if somebody writes in sincerity that what that that milk and eggs are a luxury that we can no longer afford. That worries me, and the same is true. Uh, there is the, a new push to reduce meat consumption, and again, just to make this clear for the listeners, we don't think this through, because what happens if you reduce the meat consumption in the West, right? I mean, what's, what basically is going to happen is people will. So beef is always the big thing. So if you kill all the cattle, all the all the the the, you know, the beef production, Ireland, then the Irish people may not switch to potatoes, right? This. History might tell you something different, but they're not going to do do this again. So they're going to buy more pork. Now, where the Europeans are going to buy all of that or more beef, we're going to buy it abroad. And who is not going to be able to buy it again? People in Bangladesh, right? People in Pakistan. So the it's going to be them who don't have the stake, not us. Now, why am I saying this? Because we saw this during last year's energy crisis. When Europe bought up every morsel of energy they could... And it was Pakistan who ran out of LNG. It was Indonesia who ran out of, of energy. Because at the end, the European politicians know it's one thing to talk about all these changes. It's a completely different one to actually do it. And this has been, the I don't want to use the term the big lie, but this has been the delusion that has been sold to Europeans that you can significantly reduce all the things that depend on energy, but keep the same living standards. And that's simply that's simply impossible. And more and more people in Europe are waking up to the reality, which is why we see this shift, uh, at least in the polls. And I think we look at the Netherlands, we look at Argentina, uh, we look at Italy, uh, why we see these shifts in, in the political sphere as well.
2: I think that it's very interesting what you say about um, the left thinking that we have a choice either between their utopia or apocalypse. Because, of course, to a lot of people, their utopia would look like and feel like an apocalyptic scenario for the reasons you've just described, because there would be a reduction in how much meat you could eat and eggs would come to be seen as a luxury and we'd all be living far simpler, almost pre-industrial lives. As for the people of the developing world, they would just never go beyond the point that they are currently at. So it would be an apocalyptic scenario dressed up as a utopia that would only satisfy uh, the pseudo-virtue of... Pretty wealthy greens in the Western world. That's what's, I think that's what's very interesting. I think about the anti capitalism of people like Greta Thunberg and others in the green elites, because it seems to me to be a quite different species of anti capitalism to the one that we had in the late 19th century and the 20th century, which The argument made by anti-capitalists then was that they wanted to move towards a society in which there would be greater production, greater consumption, greater levels of wealth. Now, we can debate all day long, um, and people have done for decades, about whether that was a realistic expectation of a post-capitalist society. But that's at least what their aspiration was, whereas contemporary anti-capitalists want to not go beyond capitalism in terms of production and growth, but to go back before capitalism to a more feudalistic era, a pre-industrial era, a era, an era that's more agrarian and and basic and, and almost uh, a peasant-like existence. So I think a lot of people are repelled by, by that idea and do hold out hope for exactly the kind of modern forms of energy production that you're talking about. Uh, another one I wanted to ask you about, just to stick on COP28 for one second and then we can uh, broaden it out to the other questions, I did want to ask you about the prospect for natural gas, because I think the the two ways in which COP28 both symbolised, I think, the uh, grotesque excesses of the environmentalist movement, where they kind of gather in their tens of thousands to pontificate about the end of the world, which is not going to come in my Um, denialist view, as people would see it. Uh, But on the other hand, as you say, uh, there was a lot of um, positive noises about increasing nuclear production. And there was also positive noises about keeping hold of natural gas, expanding it and so on. And we know that America has done wonders with fracking and its exploration of its um, gas reserves. Sadly, in Britain, we've had a moratorium on fracking. Um, We're not allowed to do it in the way that we had been doing it to me, that's as crazy as Germany's phasing out of nuclear energy, in the, in the sense that it is it's a obviously a pretty suicidal policy to adopt in in a world in which there is there has been and there will be an energy crisis for some time to come. So, what is the promise of natural gas? Do you think to what extent is will that play a role alongside the development of nuclear energy in terms of? creating the energy that the world needs in order to prosper
1: well let me let me kind of begin with a little story that i think your your listeners will will appreciate um daniel Jurgen has written a book the the new map uh and it's very interesting and in, in the first two chapters so it's right at the beginning he describes how fracking came about kind of how the fracking revolution happened and it's a very it's a it's so typically American. It's it's like almost too much sugar in your dessert, so to say, because it's exactly the kind of story. Like everybody said, it's impossible. You know, fracking, horizontal drilling can't be done. Impossible. You know, you will never be able to tap into these resources. And then you had this handful of guys and this handful of investors who said, no, we have to do it. We have to do it. That might be a little bit, you know, made up. But the story is that it wasn't the very last attempt that they did, the very last drilling hole, the very last test hole they had, that it finally worked. And then a hooray. And you know, the, all the, the great the outbreak of, of this technological uh, breakthrough, but you know wh- whether it was as fancy as Jurgen describes it or more mundane. The point is that in 2003, the expectation was that the United States will become the world's largest LNG importer. Now they are the world's largest LNG exporter. Now, why is this important? For two reasons. One is the revolution happened so quickly that both the American state, the American government, and the environmentalists were basically sucker punched by it. So it was something that nobody expected to happen. So nobody was was capable of resisting or preventing it. Uh, this is what they're trying now with all these made up, you know, methane leaks and this kind of thing, which is the declaration of war on natural gas. And the third point that I cannot stress, well, actually I have two more points if I may. The third point is it was natural gas that allowed the United States to increasingly switch away from coal. So natural gas has been more successful in reducing emissions in an industrialized uh, nation than the alternatives. And the fourth point is, if the US would not have had the shale revolution in 2022 when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, the lights would have gone out all over Europe without because we we would have had nothing to compensate for Russian pipeline gas. So don't get me wrong. The Americans made a lot of money with selling LNG to Europe. But as you point out, it's banned in Austria as well. It's banned in Germany as well. We decided to make ourselves dependent, and then we complain about others using the leverage that we gave them. But if we would not have had the United States to jump in with their liquefied natural gas Ukraine would now be entirely a Russian province because we would have had nothing to hold up against them. I know some people will say, well, what's the big deal? Then we would have to do a couple of months without without natural gas. Yeah, good luck. Good luck living in London, in Vienna, in, uh, in Berlin. And the government says, oh, by the way, over the next four days, there is no electricity. You cannot look as quickly. You cannot say blackout as fast as people will be rioting in the streets. So the idea that people would have accepted this uh for the sake of Ukrainian independence is completely ludicrous. They wouldn't have done. Uh, and I'm not sure if they would do it now. But this is the kind of the, the the really crucial points here. That the Shale Revolution was an actual energy revolution, not a promised one like the renewables revolution. It's an revolution that actually happened. It did help to decrease emissions, so it also fulfilled that promise, and it saved Europe without you know, w- without a doubt. So I completely agree with what you said. This is a very, very important resource and we should try to to get it As much as we can from wherever we can. Also, by the way, not just for energy reasons, also for geopolitical reasons. Let me also tell something that I think that many people don't understand, uh, particularly those who are political decision makers. You you cannot defeat a, a resource exporter like Russia if you weak your own energy production. Uh, because the idea is you cannot defeat a country like Russia that, that exports very inflexible or inelastic goods like energy um, via volume because they make it up via price. And this is what they don't understand. What we would have had to do, what the recipe would have been to destroy Russia's war machine would have been to flood the market with energy and to collapse the price. Because that's the thing that people don't know about energy is it's if if, if we produce too much of it, Prices drop very quickly. If we have too little, prices rapidly increase. So to give you one example, during COVID, a barrel of oil was trading at minus $37 per barrel, right? So oil and gas producers were basically paying you to take their oil because you cannot just turn on and turn off the oil production. So they needed somebody to take their oil. Now, at the same time, when there is too much of demand, right, prices increase much quicker. So if Saudi Arabia even slightly reduces their production. Prices go up by a significantly higher margin than the, the decline because it's very inelastic. Well, I hope you can forgive me. It sounds very, you know tricky, but the commodity market is both fascinating, but something that we do not understand in the West. We see the same now happening again in Europe, where the idea is the government can simply pay for it. The government can't. If there is no energy, money doesn't help you, unless it's like, I think it was the movie with Sylvester Stallone, Cliffhanger, where they were were burning uh, dollar notes to keep themselves warm. That's the alternative. But if there's a limited amount of a resource, more government money is only making that money lessen its value, but it's not going to increase the availability of that resource. And I think we still don't understand this, and this is something that worries me. But you're absolutely correct. Right, Natural gas will be a crucial resource in the future, not just for the production of electricity. We need it in petrochemical processes. We need it in the production of fertilizers. Again, just for your your viewers and your listeners to know, as I know some of them know this, 50% of the global population depends on artificial fertilizers. Otherwise, we would not have the crop yields necessary to feed the world. So the fossil fuel industry, again, we can debate the, the nature of the companies in a separate setting, but the products that they make are so important for modern life that just turning them off is going to have devastating consequences. Let me just give you one number. If I find this is my, my favorite number. I okay, two numbers, my favorite numbers. Every year, the world uses about 100 billion barrels of oil as an energy equivalent, right? So all the energy we use would be about 100 billion uh, barrels of oil. If we would say the kind of work that can be done with that energy is the equivalent to 500 billion people, right? So, so, so the energy we use is like an additional workforce to the 8 billion people that live on the planet of 500 billion people. To kind of add on to this, a barrel of oil is the equivalent of over four years of labor. Right, That's the energy that's, that's contained if you compare it to a human being, including the fact that muscular work is more efficient than its energy use. Or to give a last one, both you, Brandon, I don't know where you are currently, whether you're in the UK or somewhere else, I'm here in Austria, the energy I use every day is the equivalent of 240 people working for me 24-7, 365. It is no coincidence that things like modern slavery are most prevalent in areas that have low access to energy. It makes a lot of sense. If I cannot have a dishwasher, if I cannot have a dryer, if I cannot have a, uh, you know, all the other technical equipment, I will find someone who does it for me. So ideally I could pay that person. But if the societal structure allows for something like slavery, I will find somebody who has to do it because I threatened them with force. And this is still happening. So again, I want to make this very clear to everyone. If we reduce the amount of energy available significantly, we will bring back things that we thought were long gone. The history of the abolishment of slavery, for example, is not just the history of these fantastic people who fought for the abolishment of the abolitionists, right? They were amazing people. I know I I don't want to to put their achievements uh, into the shadow, but one of the reasons why ultimately slavery was abolished is because the steam engine made it uneconomical. And I think this is what we have to understand. So if we want to go back into a pre-industrial age, I think there's this idea. This, you mentioned there's this weird idea that we're going to work in the fields and 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 you know uh, in, in in the sweat on our face and it's all kind of how how Dostoevsky uh, sorry how, how Tolstoy describes it in in Anna Karenina, right? Then we we cut the grass and it's going to be this exhilarating thing. That sounds nice for a two-week vacation, but for your entire life it's gonna be a problem. And things like slavery or like forced labor will come back because we see this in the world. And I think being blind to this is a very, very, very dangerous thing. And the last point, what I find so ironic, what really drives global energy use is not just population growth. If we would all be hunter-gatherers, the the you know, the, the carbon footprint of the human race would be very small. It's urbanization. And now take a look in which areas. Do the green parties, the environmental parties have their voters? Where do they have the largest footprint? It's in the city centers. It's in the urban centers. So the very areas that have the highest carbon footprint, that have the highest uh, energy use is where all these people that tell us to use less energy are conglomerating. So there is a little bit, again, this is why I say it's much more a form of cognitive dissonance. I think that you can explain much easier, at least in parts, by this kind of you said it, kind of by this sport or urban, you know, rich elite that just needs something to do with their life. And I mean, it's hard to do something with your own life, but telling others how to live their life makes you feel good about yourself and it gives you an excuse. To not adhere by the same rules that you want to impose on others. And this is the thing, right? Of course John Kerry has to fly in a private jet because he does so much for the world. And of course, Miss Thunberg has to jet around the world to Cope, to New York and all these places, or Louisa Neubauer, or all these other these other spokespersons of this movement. But they are exceptions from their rules because they are the only ones who can, you know, who can save the world. And uh as a it's partially funny, but of course. If they get their way, I think it's going to be much less funny for, for a much larger group of people.
2: Yeah, I I really agree that, you know, the idea that you can wind down the industrial era or reverse some of the great gains of the industrial era and that there won't be severe social and political consequences, it's, it's so deluded, it's so incredibly deluded. You know, it's almost difficult to predict what the fallout from such an event would be, but it would be very significant. And those of us who have, you know, ancestors in our living memory, who we can actually remember, who who worked on the land, we know that it's not the fantasy that lots of these rich elites have, where they think it's, you know, picking strawberries during the day and putting your feet up in front of a roaring fire at night. It's actually a very hard life and often an unfree life. You know, people forget that the Industrial Revolution didn't only drag us from agriculture to a modern economy, but also is the basis on which we had freedom and political parties and education and rights and all those other things that come along with modernization uh, I also really agree that the, the shale revolution was a real energy revolution, and it's one that people just don't talk about very much. I think we're supposed to feel embarrassed about fracking. The fracking debate in Britain has been so awful over the past decade. You know, we did so much fracking both onshore and offshore in the 70s and the 80s. We created a lot of natural gas. We became self-sufficient for a period of time in, in relation to natural gas resources. Um, and then, of course, there were all the scare stories about earthquakes, and which actually were very minor tremors. If you read some of the Guardian reports about these so-called earthquakes, it usually involved a picture falling off someone's wall, because the earth tremored to a certain extent. And the Royal Society actually published a report. The Royal Society, one of the most esteemed institutions of the Enlightenment, the the great scientific body, published a report saying that the threat from earthquakes is incredibly minor and we should give clearance to fracking across the country, and yet still... We arrive at a situation where it's called off and it's, it's a real shame and it spoke to, I think, the rise of regressive thinking and the way it can really hit a society hard and cause these suicidal consequences within a nation that you've talked about. In relation to that, I did want to ask you about Germany, the current situation in Germany. I think a lot of people, certainly a lot of my listeners, will be bemused by what Germany has done in relation to its nuclear power stations over the past 10 or 15 years, phased them out as a consequence of a decision made by Angela Merkel. I think around 25% of Germany's energy came from nuclear power stations, and then they just, you know, eventually switched them all off. And you described earlier on, very funnily, how Germany then goes to a conference like COP28 in the United Arab Emirates, thinks it's cock of the walk and can dish out advice to the nations of the world. And and most of them are looking at Germany and thinking, we don't want to be like you. What is the fallout now in Germany from the energy question, from the turn against nuclear, the various energy crises that Germany has inflicted upon itself? What is the impact both in terms of energy production in Germany, but also in how ordinary people understand the political establishment and, and the decisions that it makes.
1: Well, I think the first uh, and most important immediate consequence was, is deindustrialization. I mean, no serious person any longer doubts this. We have, this is the nice thing. The Germans are like the Americans, are like the British, very good in keeping statistics. The energy intensive industries in Germany are dying. Every number shows this. I mean, it's again, this is the irony. This is sold to us now as a success. Right, because you have these headlines, you know Germany reduced energy use significantly in 2023. Yes, if you turn off all your smelters, if you turn off all your glass, paper, chemical, and petrochemical industry, of course you're going to use less uh, energy. So I mean, whether or not this is a success, I would say that that's a different question. That's a matter of, of interpretation, and it's no coincidence. I would then argue that that. Alternative parties who don't follow that path are, are gaining in the polls. But there's, again, I was reading The the Economist yesterday about how, how green policies are enacted, but somehow the voters don't vote, vote for the green parties, even though, and that was the last paragraph, even though all the flagship projects of the greens are going in the right direction. And, and I'm wondering, what flagship projects are they talking about? As you just mentioned, turning off, paid off, fully functional, and among the world's best nuclear power plants is a very odd thing to say that is the right decision. If you say you don't want to build new ones, fine. I think that's also stupid, but fine. But turning fully functional, Fully paid nuclear power plants just for ideological reasons. That is, again, it's very German, but I don't think it is, it is a particularly, a particularly smart move. Um, and the same you had in the Spiegel, right? That that supposedly the, the high brow German weekly magazine, they write about how Robert Habeck is now rising from the ashes and that his next stop will be the German chancellery. You, like, polls don't reflect this. So you have, you have a media establishment that writes about something that's something but that's obviously not related to reality. And you can see you now this very interesting shift that says, well, that, that all the other political parties they have to unify against the threat of the populists and you know, and they shouldn't give any airtime and you know, because you have to choke off their public appearances. They don't understand that if you do this all you're going to do is increase their appeal as protest parties. I mean, I'd be honest, if I would be in Germany, full disclosure, I'm pretty sure that I would vote for the AFD. I wouldn't even care, to be honest, they are actually pretty good on energy policy, but I wouldn't even be so interested in what their political program is if the alternative is national suicide. And this is what is currently happening in Germany. I'm very sorry, there is no other way to describe it. They are the only economy or the only major economy that has a shrinking economy. They say, no, by 2024, it's going to grow again. Yeah, but that's they said the same thing three months ago. So we're going to hear that, that, that now for, for years to come. All the companies are leaving Germany. A quarter of, of major companies says they either have or are about to move uh, production uh, into uh, offshore out of Germany. So this is, this is happening while we speak. And again, people are not willing to sign up for this. And this brings me back to something I said early on. The big difference between the left and the right is, and I think this is true all over the West, that the right still believes that the primary obligation of an elected government is to its own people. The primary obligation is to the national interest and the national interest is to increase the wealth and prosperity of your people. This is not how the left looks at the world. The left looks at the world as this great challenge where we have to atone for sins of the past, We have to save the entire planet. And at the same time, as you said, kind of virtue signal by, by torturing ourselves in all these different ways. And I think that is the key difference. By the way, to be very clear, I would not count the current conservative party in the United Kingdom or the conservatives in Germany, I would not count them as right wing. They signed up for all these ludicrous policies. So they are also not, they don't have a, I can be very harsh here, but I don't think they have a genuinely patriotic bone in their body. With a few exceptions, again, with a few exceptions, but the policies we pursue in economics, in energy, in migration, in all these areas, is not driven by the idea of a national interest that is defined by what's best for the people within the country. Now, you can say that's a chauvinist viewpoint. Okay, maybe it is. But we don't have a world government. We don't vote for a world government. We vote for local governments, for national governments. And I think it's not too much to ask, as more and more people do, to say, why do these governments have such a hard time to put the interests of their own people first? I know, I mean, this makes me sound like a populist. But 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that would have been common sense. And this, I think, what we also must understand. You can only have common sense if you have something in common. And this, of course, makes this increasingly difficult because we have less and less in common. But I think this is partially by design. Uh, I find in many ways, right, as you also have written about quite a bit, in many areas, I find diversity a threat and not a, and not a benefit for that very reason. You need something to tie people together. And the idea that you can ask more and more sacrifices of the very people to whom you show nothing but contempt, to whom you show nothing but disregard, this is not going to work. And you see it. You see it in the German conservatives. You see it in the Republicans. You see it in the British conservatives. Like the people sense that they pay lip service, but then they don't do it. Like this is, again, I think, again, Rishi Sunak, surely a nice guy. I mean, I would immediately have a beer. I don't know if he's a drinker or not. I would immediately have a beer with him. But when he talks to a reporter, you can see how, how you know, kind of behind his eyeballs... He's running through the latest focus group and and the latest polls. And then he says what he thinks that people want to hear. But people realize that. People sense that this guy, or as you guys would say, that this bloke is saying something that he thinks we want to hear, but it doesn't mean it. And then everybody is surprised that somebody who I find funny, but that somebody like Nigel Farage or Donald Trump or, or, or Gerd Wilders that they then uh, rise in the polls because say about them what you want. I think they are more genuine or or maybe they just played better. I don't know, but they seem more authentic. And people accepted the inauthenticity of the political class as long as the economic conditions were going well. Or as I like to say, there was a time where we could afford, where we were rich enough to be stupid. I think those days are over. And now people are on the lookout for serious politicians again. And we are, I believe, in a very, very dangerous interregnum or or a very dangerous period at the moment. The first thing that's going to happen with this dissatisfaction with the political class is that people turn to, and I mean this, again, scary quotes. I don't want to offend any of their supporters. I like them as well. But they turn to, let's say, the more clownish but effective figures, the Trumps, the Farage's. But I think what comes after them, That's going to be the really potentially, I'm not even saying dangerous, but those will be the true right-wing conservative revolutionaries, or let's forget the conservative part, the right-wing revolutionaries, and the real populists. This is the thing. Donald Trump is no Hitler. Nigel Farage is no Hitler. Gerd Wilders is no Hitler. That's ridiculous. But is there the potential, if the rudder cannot be turned, right? If course cannot be corrected, is there a chance that such figures will really tap into the anger that is growing all over the West and come to power 100%, 100%. And this is, I think, what we overlook. So maybe it would be better to give the Farages, the Trumps, the AFDs a chance, or at least to look at why are they popular and then steal their program. That's the point that I don't understand, right? Nothing they say is particularly, it's, it's not rocket science. Why is Herd Wilders popular? Well, the people tell you why he's popular. Why is Nigel Farage popular? Everybody tells you why. And it's like you have the the chin stroking and the head scratching in the established media, how they are populists and they tap into the, the, the low sentiments and the low instincts of the population. I don't know if that's true because in many areas, everything they have warned us about for 30 years I mean, you have to admit, a lot of this actually came true. Some of them were yelling about the migration issue, about the economic issue, about the energy issue since the mid-1990s. And we were told that they're all, you know, tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists. And now it turns out that, well, they weren't. And again, I think we very, very much underestimate. If you get this perfect storm of general dissatisfaction with the elite, of economic misery And then a potential alternative. People will turn to the alternative. And and as I said, for now, it's quote-unquote entertaining figures that are the alternative. But there will be some darker figures in the future. And at least I would not rule that out.
2: Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable and I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology, and it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now, on with the show. Yeah, I think think there's a lot of people out there who see some of these populist politicians as a blunt instrument that they can wield against an establishment that doesn't take them seriously, doesn't listen to their concerns, doesn't respect their need for a more positive economic future or respect their cultural way of life, either. And I think. A lot of people feel they're under assault, both economically and culturally, from an out of touch establishment. And they see some of these politicians as a bit of a cudgel, maybe a bit um, clownish, as you say sometimes, but an instrument that can be used against an establishment that has left us behind. I think that's how people see Trump, for example, uh, Geert Wilders, possibly other politicians in Europe as well. And I wanted to ask you about that in relation to Germany specifically. So we've got Olaf Scholz, the uh, chancellor, and he's in a coalition government with, of course, his social. Democratic Party and the Greens and uh, the Free Democratic Party. They're not doing particularly well from what I read about Germany. I think there's a, a sense that their ideological cracks are starting to show that this is not a very coherent coalition in any real sense, except they might be cohered possibly by their elitist disdain for a huge section of the German electorate, but they're not cohered by anything more substantial than that. And then, of course, as you say, you have um, the alternative for Germany continuing to bite at the heels of the establishment. And the AFD's popularity is going up. A lot of the polls suggest that significant sections of Germany, particularly in the Old East, would be very willing to take another punt on the AFD and, and to put them somewhere very close to power. How do you explain the attraction of the AFD for significant numbers of German voters. It's so easy to write this off as, you know, the populace being hoodwinked by demagogic figures who are brainwashing them and filling their heads with racist nonsense and etc, etc. You know, the usual critique we hear of these new parties from old establishment journalists and old establishment politicians, which ends up being an incredibly dismissive classist attack on voters who are presumed to be stupid and unintelligent. What is it about the AFD that is attracting people? Is it its own program, or is it people's sense of complete exhaustion with the establishment in Germany? How would you describe the dynamic there?
1: Well, I think you, you raised one very important point that I find particularly intriguing, Is um, particularly in the German case. The AFD doesn't really have a demagogue, right? They, they, they have their, their figures, but they don't have the kind of demagogue that you, where you would say, right, that, that really can speak to a crowd and heat them up. So as I said, they don't have the quote unquote Hitler-esque figure, if you want. Uh, we had in Austria, maybe some of your older listeners remember, we had in the 1990s, he died in a car accident in 2008. We had Jörg Haider, right? He would, this was a Jörg Haider, that was a real demagogue. Right. If he would still be around today, I think the Freedom Party in Austria, which is our kind of AFD, if you will, although it's significantly older, of course, they would be polling at 40, 50 percent because he could do this. Right, When he spoke to a crowd, when he spoke on TV, you were kind of, you know, you were, uh, you know, electrified in your seat. So these people do exist. But I think that Nida Wilders is such a, th- Wilders a little bit more, uh, Meloni a little bit, um, but but Alice Weidel or, or Timo Kupala, right, the, the heads of the AFD. Barely anybody outside of Germany knows them, which I think also already tells you a lot because they're not these demagogic figures where I say, oh my God, there's an AFD rally and there, 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 the crowds. No, it is, I think for many German people, it is an a break glass in case of emergency kind of situation because they have been, again, for, for years now, voiced their dissatisfaction with certain directions of politics. And as you said, they are being ignored, being ignored, being ignored, which is why the party picked, I think, a very good name, which is alternative for Germany, right? Based on when when Angela Merkel said uh, a couple of, of almost decades now back when she said, there is no alternative. And this is, again, what bothers people so much. There's this idea whatever happens, oh, you can't do anything. There is no alternative. Again, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to mix up these topics, but I think it is important that this is from the economy to migration. All we hear is you can't do anything. You can't do anything. And this is why people like Including myself, right? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna gaslight your, your listeners here. Why they feel drawn to this to this more outlandish, in a positive sense, figures? Because one assumes you must be a little bit crazy to not just take on the established parties, but also the established media, the established cultural institutions, the established educational institutions, and even more importantly, the permanent bureaucracy. We, this is something we completely underestimate. You have a bureaucracy from the European level, from the EU level down to the you know to the local level and the same is true in the United States, and the same is true in the UK, where you have public servants, civil servants whom I admire very much. like one of my dearest friends is a public servant. so I mean no no offense. Her. like you know she would be very upset if I would include her in this in this category. But a lot of them right have been marinated in this left wing, as we described before, this this kind of you know anti-western ideology, and they will try to hinder whatever these new politicians can do every step along the way. So you need to be, quote, unquote, a little bit crazy to take all of that on. And this is what we also, I think tend to forget. And this I see at the heart of the problem of the West is, it's it can, The systems as they currently are, they grind you down, right? This is why we have a harder and harder time to innovate, Why we have a harder and harder time to build anything. I mean, talk to somebody in Britain, if you want to build a tunnel, uh, the, the, I think the biggest threat to British trees is not CO2 emissions. It's all the paper that's needed for the permits that they have to get if you want to build something, right? It grinds you down. In the 19th century, the Western States, the West built bureaucracies to get things done. Nowadays, we have pre- bureaucracies to prevent things from getting done. And this is one of the major problems. So, so and, and again, this is what I always want to say, and people, they, they, they love, they want to see politicians, where they think they're going to do something. What bothers them is this idea, and it's true in Germany, and it's I think true in the UK, it's true in the United States. There is a sense that the entrenched parties are basically a uniparty, right? You can, whoever you want to, you can vote for whomever you want. The left is in power. And the right is, is on occasion in office. And this is, I think, what more and more people realize. They want to see, I assume at least, they want to see somebody in power can actually do something or wants to do something. And I think we see this all across the West. But this is going to be the big challenge for these populists. There you really get to the heart of the matter. If you cannot change, if, if you cannot unchain, let's say, the potential of these countries, of these societies, you will get your movements on the right who will start to speak of systemic change. That's are going to say, we need to burn this whole thing to the ground and build anew. Now, I don't want this. I think you can reform these things. You can change these things. But then you have to start to get more and more and more people on board. And you have to start to listen to the population. But the problem is that the link That is supposed to connect, let's say, the political class and the wider population. The political class has always been elitist. The political class in the 19th century has been elitist. It has been elitist in the 20th century. But there was a media that kind of was capable of channeling these populist pressures and kind of make clear to the political class where the journey is supposed to go. But now everybody despises the people. The media despises them, the universities despise them, and the politicians despise them. So if somebody comes up and says, I hear you. I listen to you. I take your problem seriously. right? Uh, you can see how much people want this. It is absurd. And I'm actually curious to hear your opinion on this. I mean, As I said, I don't want to, to name drop him too often, but you have somebody like Nigel Farage who takes place in an absurd reality TV show. And that probably is going to make him more popular as a politician than he was before. It's complete, Again, it's entertaining, but it's completely absurd. But it, it's, you see how much people believe, and I understand this, that it's the extraordinary that can make change. So as soon as a politician seems to be different, kind of seems to offer something, quote unquote, a little bit crazy, um, then they think, okay, maybe this is the guy that can actually reform the system, that can make the changes that are needed, that can go up against quote unquote the entrenched establishment. If they can do it, we'll see, right? I mean, in many ways, Georgia Maloney has been a disappointment in Italy. I think she's better than her critics say, but it is true, right? She also, she runs up against the wall of the Italian civil service. And it turns out there's not that much you can do. So these are, again, I know this, we're trying to connect all these different points, but we are at a, at an inversion point in the West at the moment that I think it's not yet like the 1920s and the 1930s. I think it's much more like 1848, 1847. So you have this huge groundswell among the population that says what they're doing on top, that's no longer working for us, right? We we cannot identify with those people. We cannot identify with those ideologies. We cannot identify with their political goals, which is very similar to how people felt in the 1840s. Right. Where you kind of, where you say you have this entrenched class, the kind of, that, that is self-perpetuating. They go to the same universities. They do their internships at the same consulting companies. It's a you know, kind of self-perpetuating class that more and more people feel is detached from them and they want to get back in. They want genuine political participation. They want genuine political representation. And if the existing political system cannot give it to them, they will at some point turn to people who make another offer. And I think that's the true danger. The true beauty of democracy has always been that you can change those who are in charge without having to overthrow the entire political system. Right? There's always the problem in autocracies and, and you know, dictatorial systems and monarchies. You, you, that The only people who can participate in the raw power of the system come from a very, very small group of people. The point of democracy was always that you have a system that is designed to allow others to rise, that you don't just have social mobility, also have political mobility. But what we are trying, what the political, many of them, not all, but what many of the political class are trying to do, and Germany is a good example here, they trying to kind of undermine the essence of democracy, which is if people say they want to give the AFD a chance. If they say they want to give Donald Trump a chance, if they say they want to give head builders a chance, if they say they want to give Nigel Fresh a chance, then it's not their obligation to try to build you know, a firewall consisting of everybody who wants to participate in it to prevent them. No, it is to accept the will of the people, give them a try within the constitutional framework of what, what counts as a constitution in Great Britain. And if they succeed, They succeed. If they fail, they fail. And I think this is, there is a sense of entitlement among the ruling parties, among the ruling class, that they believe only they can be in charge. And I think this ultimately, this is a much bigger threat to democracy than these populist parties, because the democratic system is strong enough to deal with these populists. January 6th, tragic, horrible... But the idea that Donald Trump was on the brink of overthrowing American democracy was ridiculous, right? The U.S. military, the National Guard, none of them would have sworn allegiance to Donald Trump if he would have barricaded himself in the Oval Office, right? It might have taken a couple of days and at some point they would have dragged him out like a madman. But this is, again, this is also part of the political process and go go through history. We have these crazy individuals all along in politics. That's also part of a democracy. But kind of to trying to prevent any alternative from getting access to power at some time, as I said, I repeat myself, people will say, if you don't allow those who we feel represent us better than you to get into power by legal ways, we will support them doing it by illegal ways. And that's going to be kind of very, very, you know, non-pretty dirty picture.
2: Yeah, I, I've I've been thinking since um, the vote for Brexit in 2016, which I thought was a great moment in British history and European history. I've been thinking that everyone said it's like the 1930s and I thought the exact same thing that you've just said which is it is actually more like it feels more like 1848 you know the springtime of the peoples this sense of disgruntlement across not only in britain but in across europe with the increasingly byzantine bureaucracies that we live under their slothfulness their their archaic nature the inability for people to cut through either with their desires, their opinions and their beliefs, or simply with a a, a real sense that we need economic development, we need structural development. It's very difficult to cut through these bureaucracies and get those views across. The perfect example here in Britain is the attempt to build a third runway at Heathrow. We've been talking about this for decades, 20 years, 25 years Talking, talking, reviews, committee discussions, court cases. Uh, people saying you can't do it because of climate change, you can't do it because of noise, and it just hasn't happened. You know, Heathrow pre COVID anyway was the busy one of the busiest airports in the world, and we can't expand it um, to increase the number of flights. It's it's extraordinary. In the same time, of course, in over those twenty five years, China has built numerous new airports from scratch. And here we are wondering if we can add another runway to Heathrow. Um, okay, Ralph, my final question for you. You talked there about mixing up issues, but I like the way you're mixing up issues. I th- I, I prefer to see it as drawing out the broader trends that all these different things speak to. And one example of that, I think, which you mentioned in passing earlier is anti Israel sentiment or anti Zionism as it is, pre- as it is presented to us. I increasingly think it's, virtually indistinguishable from anti-Semitism. Certainly there is a great deal of crossover. Um, We've seen synagogues being firebombed uh, in Germany. We've seen the rise of anti-Semitic sentiment online. Um, uh, There have been marches in London almost every weekend since the pogrom of the 7th of October, at which some people have expressed open support for Hamas. Other people have chanted anti-Semitic slogans. People have waved the swastika and accused the Jewish state of being like the Nazis. All stuff that you will be familiar with. And... It's interesting, isn't it, that you have some Greens like Greta Thunberg um, throwing their lot in with the Gaza question. They would see themselves as offering solidarity to Gaza. But to my mind, it's possibly not surprising that the eco-death cult in the West should not necessarily sympathize with the Islamist death cult in Gaza, but certainly seems uh, relatively blasé about the threat posed by the Islamist death cult in Gaza, which of course is Hamas. And I I have found myself wondering if there is a connection between the anti-modernism of certain voices on the Western left and the violent anti-modernism and anti-Israelism of Hamas. So how do you see this issue fitting in with the broader trends that we've been talking about, anti-humanism, the turn against Western civilization? Do you think the rage, the fashionable rage against Israel is another expression of those kinds of trends?
1: I mean, you had a wonderful conversation recently (laughs) with our common friend Batya uh, Ungar-Sargon, on this, and I think I mean, I think you know her take and her insights on this are are absolutely uh, spot on, and I'm not I'm not particularly surprised to be. I mean, no, I take that back. Uh, what came out of the universities surprised me. That you would have marches in the streets, uh, particularly in, in, in cities and, and countries with a high percentage of, of Muslims within the population. That was not a surprise. That was to be expected. Because Israel is viewed as a Western state, as a Western nation. So they are viewed through the same, you know, decolonial, anti-imperialist, anti-Western, anti-capitalist lens. I mean, I think in the case of Israel, it's even worse. Because what Israel has shown the world is what a, a Western, what Western civilization can do in a, in a quote unquote, God forsaken area of the planet. And yes, yes, I know I'm being hierarchical here and I'm not being culturally sensitive here, but this was kind of my, if you want, my conversion on October 7th is I'm done with all of that. I'm done with with the sensitivity. Listen, if I would have been born in 1499, I'd be the first to admit that Chinese and Arab civilization was superior to Western civilization. No doubt about this. Uh, I'm even willing to say that there was a significant uh, period in time where well, know, Aztec civilization was superior to it. I have no problem. But in the 21st century, I think it is very, very hard to make the case that that from however we measure human well-being... Western civilization is taking the second place to anyone. Now, as always, if you're Chinese, be proud of your civilization, I would be. If you're Muslim, be proud of your civilization, I would be as well, but so am I of my own. And what bothers me is this constant attempt by our elites to turn against our own civilization, because look at it from another perspective. The most measured response to what happened on October 7th in in the broader geopolitical picture was from the Arab states. Which I find quite surprising, right? And they have a they have really a very, very difficult path to chart here because they know how their population thinks. There's one statistic I always like to use a poll they recently did in Saudi Arabia, where only seven percent of the people in Saudi Arabia would accept an Israeli prime minister to come to their country for an international summit. So basically ninety-three percent of the Saudi population is still, let's say, somewhat hostile to Israel, but their political leadership I think has realized that this is no path into the future. The United Arab Emirates, I mean, they have recognized Israel with the Abraham Accords, right? They have realized this. Um, we know Egypt, I mean, Egypt did it a, a while ago, but you can see how the political leadership there, I think, is much more clear-eyed and realistic about this than they are in the West. And they basically, with, again, with some exceptions, Turkey, Erdogan is a, again, Turkey is a, is a, is a, it's its own story. Iran is its own story, but you can see that they did not allow their populations to act in the way that we did uh, that we did in the west um, again i'm not saying i want them to the, the west to act like these these dictatorial regimes but i think what you see is that they also understand that this is not as easy you know the apartheid occupiers versus the eternal victims that this is not as easy which is for example why egypt outright said like they're not, not going to accept any any refugees from gaza you know and and you see the same in jordan right they 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 wouldn't touch uh, the West Bank with a, with a 10-foot pole. And it's, again, the reason why we look at this or why our reporting looks at this or why somebody like Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the UN, who respectfully I think is a crazy person. I, I mean, this like I thought he was crazy when he talked about global boiling and we're on the highway to hell. I mean, he uses this line all the time because apparently I don't know how many people still listen to ACDC, probably you and I, and that's it. So I don't know whom he wants to connect with, uh, but the same, well, like, pretty much everything he says is ridiculous. So that this man is heading the UN is, is, a, is a problem all in itself, but he's an old leftist and the left always looked at Israel in this way. Uh, the, the, the red army faction in Germany in the 1980s, the, uh, the, the left in Italy, right? They always had a problem with Israel. They always had a problem with Zionism. And of course they were inherently also anti-Semitic. Uh, so I'm just surprised uh, was something else. BDS, right, the boycott, di- divest, sanctions idea has been around for decades. I think Harvard had year after year after year what they called the Israel Apartheid Week. So all of this was out in the open. I, I'm just surprised by, you know, kind of now that the pearl clutching by people like Farid Zakir and, and, and others who say, oh, my God, I did not expect this. How was this possible? If you marinate an entire generation in anti-Western sentiment, and then you have a conflict between a quote-unquote Western nation and non-Western nation in the Middle East. Of course, they're going to side with the non-Western part. I don't think that there's a particular surprise. Anti-Semitism has always been a problem in Europe. Uh, I did not expect, however, to, to kind of it coming to the forefront so strongly and so unapologetically. That is, I think, that the thing that bothers me the most. Um, and you've written about this, but for example, Holocaust denial. Took a while, so my grandfather's right. They lived through the uh, uh, the Nazi regime, and and it, it sends me to say, or, or again, I wasn't alive at that time, but but I, I don't come from a family of resistance fighters. But but even that, and, and this was just to be clear, right, this was not easy for the generation back then in Austria and Germany to basically realize that you lived through something that is probably as close to evil on earth as it is possible, and you potentially were even a supporter of it. But even they, they, you know, they said, no, it wasn't six million, it was only three million. So, right, there was kind of this, this, but there was only a very limited faction that was doing outright Holocaust denial. But now, barely a month after what happened on October 7th, we are in rape denial, we are in killing denial. We It's like, oh, they didn't happen. And the people who died, they were shot down from Israeli helicopters. And the Israel Secret Service knew it, and they planned it. It was a false flag operation. So we shifted to the equivalent of Holocaust denial incredibly quickly and I think again the reason there is because we cannot accept that sometimes the bad guys out there is not us there is which is so ironic because it's the worst kind of narcissism it's what if you run around and say we are the greatest that can be annoying but fine but what the West is doing it runs around and says we are the worst yet we still want to tell everybody else what to do right kind of look at us. How terrible, admire us for, for, for how terrible we are. And I find this is a, is a very, very odd thing. And, and you find this also in publications that I admire. Criticize Israel as much as you want. Genocide, are you serious? You have, you have in one sentence, you say they are conducting a genocide in an area that is supposedly, which by the way is not entirely true, in an area that is one of the densestly populated and youngest in the world. Those two things cannot exist in one sentence. You cannot be simultaneously, be one of the fastest growing populations on the planet and be a victim of genocide. Right? Like those two things don't, it, it, it's impossible. But this is where the debate is going because what's behind it, What behind? in my opinion, what's behind it is that the, the main driver of a lot of this guilt trip the West is on is the Holocaust. So in that sense, I, I'm being facetious here, but in that sense, Germany has, has won the war because they have extended their historical complex onto pretty much the entire West. And the best way for some, at least I would argue, again, maybe subconsciously, maybe unintuitively, but the best way to cope with this historic guilt is if the former victims of the Holocaust are the new Nazis. If you basically, we who did this in the past, we now have to help you, the former victims, to be better, right? Because that's, that's, an, that's the ultimate atonement. And I think this is why there is such a temptation to use the term genocide, or maybe even use the term Holocaust, because, well, if the Israelis do it, then maybe there is something wrong with the Jews, because that's ultimately what it, what it is going to. And one last point that, that I really want to make is, which goes, the world loves dead Jews, right? Holocaust memory, history shall not repeat itself, you know, beware of the beginnings. But when Israel does what it does now, if the living Israelis, if the living Jews, say, "We will not go down this route again," right? We will defend ourselves. We will fight for our survival. You see how quick the attitude turns, and this is—it's—it's it's absurd.
2: Ralph, well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>
1: thank you. <laughs>